0: So if you'll look at Acts chapter 2, I'll be reading from ESV, uh, and you can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. We're joining Peter's uh, sermon on the day of Pentecost, uh, about midway through, and then we're looking at what happens following that sermon. So we'll begin with Acts 2, verse 22. This is Peter talking. Men of Israel, hear these words. I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God hath sworn with an oath that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus... your, foot, your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God hath made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were all cut to the heart and, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray together. And as we do, just silently, just go to God and ask him, that he would speak to you today that his spirit would would meet your needs Father we realize that that if anything happens to us in the next hour if we come away different if we're changed if we grow if we learn if our if our needs are met it's because you have done it that you have used your servant and your word and your spirit has applied that to our hearts. And we we just lift up to you all sorts of needs this morning. There are people here in this room who are hurting, people who are fearful, people who are worried about something, people who have all kinds of needs. Lord, we lift those up to you. And we realize that those spiritual needs are only met by your spirit. Father, we pray that your spirit would minister to us individually. Lord, we want to learn this morning. Uh, We want to see things in your word we haven't seen before. We want to come away with a fresh vision of what you want to do in this church. And Lord, we want to come away different. We want to come away knowing that We have met the living God. We praise you for being the God who created the world, the God who created the church, the God who called us before the foundation of the world, the God who loves us with an infinite love, and the God who has told us, if you bring your sins to me, I will forgive them because they've already been paid for on the cross. We give you this time right here today. We ask that you speak to us in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.
1: Was the narrative of the birth of the church... When the church, when this entity called the church, first came to emerge on the planet for the very first time—that is the birth of the church. And so, as you know, this morning we're going to take the next three weeks to think and talk and uh, contemplate the church. But, but I want to begin by saying this: that every once in a while, it's really, really healthy to ask scary questions. It's healthy to ask scary questions. And by scary, I mean questions that make you think. Questions that make you uncomfortable. Questions that challenge your assumptions and traditions. Questions that will not let you be comfortable with cliches and platitudes. Questions that make you fidget and squirm and expose flimsy logic and why you believe what you actually say you believe as believers. It's really, really healthy to ask those kinds of questions. And those kinds of questions become especially important when it comes to the church and why we think the church exists and what the church exists to do. It becomes really important to ask those kinds of questions about the church. Because if we don't ask if we don't challenge our assumptions about the church and what we think it exists to do, you know what happens. We grow moldy and stale and cold and slaves to legalistic tradition, and you know where that goes. You know where that leads. 20 years down the road, and we have shrunk to the size of a small group, and all we can do is cling to our traditions and reminisce about the glory days and how great things used to be. And there are thousands, tens of thousands of churches in America exactly in that place because they refuse to ask questions that challenge their assumptions. So here's the question for the day, the scary question of the day. You ready? It's not going to feel like it's scary, but it is a scary question. And the question is this. What is the goal of a local church? That's the question. What is the goal of a local church? Like seriously, what are we even doing here? What is our target as a church? What is our aim as a church? What do we exist to do and why do we do what we do? Think about it. Sunday services. Why? Why? Small groups, for what reason? Expository preaching, explain this to me. Equipping classes, Sunday night theology seminars. I mean, what is even the point of all that? At the end of the day, we have to ask the question, what is the end goal to which we should be striving as a local church? And maybe you're thinking, Jared, that's what we pay you to know. And you're right, you do. But you know what? You should know that too you should know it, and you should love it, and you should own it. Because the answer, the answer to that question is that the goal of every local church is not merely to grow in numbers or to build some programs, but the goal of a healthy church, here it is, the goal is to be healthy enough to multiply. That's the answer. The goal of a local church is to be healthy enough to multiply. To multiply what? Disciples. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples, who plant churches, that make disciples, that plant churches, and on and on it goes until all of God's elect are reached and the plan is over. Our goal as a church is to be healthy enough to multiply, to implement the kinds of things inside a church to make us healthy, to make us a healthy church that changes the world. That's exactly the kind of church that we want to be. Because that's the only kind of church there is to be. The Bible does not conceive of another kind... And the reason why we're talking about this, you know, is because, because today we begin a three-week reflection on our mission and vision and purpose as a church. Because last year, if you were here, you remember that we cut the ribbon and we pulled back the curtain and we unveiled our mission as a church and why we do what we do, why we exist to do what we do. And you remember that we launched Christ Community 2.0, as it were. We shaped a new mission. We drafted new priorities and ambitious, though it may sound, we even drafted a 20 year plan to change the world. And the reason why we did is because so much is at stake unfolding in the plan of salvation happening in the world. You understand that as those who belong to Jesus Christ, we literally bear the weight of the world on our shoulders. I mean, we, as the church, we, we are literally the last barrier before the gates of hell. We are the last stop in the world before souls plunge themselves into, into eternal ruin and destruction. I mean, you know that, right? And so if we're going to do this church thing, we got to do it right. If we're going to go through the trouble and the pain and the agony of being a church, we might as well go all the way and not just settle for this city, but even for Judea and Samaria and to even to the ends of the earth. And the only way to be that church is if you are healthy enough to multiply, which is exactly why we formed a 20 year plan. And so the only question I have for you at the outset is, are you ready to be that kind of church? Are you ready to be the kind of home base we need to be? To be a church that's healthy enough to multiply. A church that's healthy enough to change the world. Are you ready to make this church a laboratory for the Great Commission? A church that grows not bacteria, but disciples who make disciples. Because you understand, we are a church. And what that means is that we are a body. And what that means is that we are connected. There are no private moments in our lives. Everything that we do, and even the most private moments of our lives, affect the health and life of this local church. And so what that means is our mission as a church is to be a spiritual fitness center, making disciples fit and trim with Christ exalting maturity. Not so that we can ogle at ourselves in the mirror. But so that we can go back out there into the flabby badlands of spiritual death and save ruined sinners from eternal woe and despair. That's our mission. That's why we exist. So let's talk about the mission of Christ's community today. If you have notes, and I hope you do, if you don't, either way, here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see a 20 year plan to change the world. Unfolding in four stages and how you can be a part of it A 20-year plan to change the world Unfolding in four stages and how you can be a part of it That is where we're going Now, first, however before we look at that 20-year plan, we need to back up and we need to talk about our mission and purpose as a church, which we actually talked about in the middle of the service. But this 20-year plan that, that we have here, that we're unfolding right now, that we have been unfolding, this comes from our mission statement. And again, you know what our mission statement is, don't you? We exist to do three things as a church. To prize, portray, And proclaim the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. That's our mission. That defines who we are. That drives every single thing that we do. We exist to prize Christ as our highest treasure. We portray Christ as our life-changing redeemer. We proclaim Christ as the sin-conquering savior for the joy of all the nations. That is our mission. And anything that does not fit within that mission, that thing we do not do. That's our church. And so what this does is raise the question, doesn't it? Well, it sounds great, but how are you actually going to fulfill and accomplish that mission? I mean, the, the question is, what are the non-negotiable, head-on-the-chopping-block convictions that enables you to fulfill the mission that you have as a church? Thank you for asking. Great question. And that's exactly the answer that's found in the Bible. You see, when you look at the scriptures, you find at least seven non-negotiable convictions that you have got to have to accomplish your mission as a church. In other words, if we do these things, it will guarantee the success of our mission. And they're in your notes. They're on the banner outside. They drive everything we do to fulfill our mission. Number one, we commit to preach the word and sound doctrine. If you want to know what our church is about and what we stand for and our priorities, here they are. There are seven of them. We commit to preach the word and sound doctrine. Not just from the pulpit, but small groups, equipping classes, Bible studies, and in your relationships to one another, the proclamation of the word is where it all begins. The proclamation of the word of God is where it all ends God literally unfolds his plan for history through the proclamation of the word. We are literally placing all of the eggs of our hope into the basket of the proclamation of the word because the power is in the word proclaimed. Number two, we fulfill our mission by cultivating heartfelt treasuring of the triune God. We want to cultivate heartfelt treasuring of the triune God because we want to be a happy church. We want to be a joyful church. We want to be a satisfied church in the supremacy of God. Why? Because, get this, the Christ-exalting success of a church or the Christ-defaming failure of a church is completely dependent upon the appetite that that church has for the living God. It's not just about running a few programs. It's about being exhilarated with who God is. And so as a church, we're going to climb the Himalayas of the Bible. And to see the towering majesty of God on the pages of scripture. Because get this, the more consumed we are with who God is, the more effective we will be for the mission to which he's called us. Number three. We commit to pray with urgent passion for the impossible. We commit to pray with urgent passion for the the impossible, because prayer is not some mystical act of piety where we think we hear God's voice. Rather, prayer is the means through which Christ unfolds his power in the world. You see, prayer is the urgent blood and guts act where we call the headquarters of heaven for everything we need as the church advances against the powers of darkness. We must pray number four. To fulfill our mission, we commit to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We commit to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And all that means, get this now, is not merely training you how to think theologically, but to live theologically. To close the gap between what we know and how we live. To live out the implications of our theology. You see, all equipping is, is the process of repairing wounded sinners with the word of God so that they can go back out there and fight in the trenches of the Great Commission. This is why we offer equipping classes. This is why we do theology seminars and small groups and biblical counseling and books of the month and preaching on Sunday morning, not merely to fill your head with data, but to equip you for the work of ministry. Number five. We commit to speak the truth to one another in love. We commit to speak the truth to one another in love, which doesn't merely mean being honest with one another about how we like or dislike one another's wardrobe. Rather, to speak the truth to one another in love is a description of what relationships should be like in the local church. See, the point is, the point is, all our relationships are to be filled with biblical truth. Paul said in Ephesians 4.15, he said this very thing, to speak the truth to one another in love. And by truth, he meant truth, biblical truth. He's talking about scripture. His point is authentic Biblical relationships in the church must be characterized by the mutual and faithful investment of the word of God into one another's lives. Because at the end of the day, our individual pursuit of holiness and sanctification is a community service project. Number six, to fulfill our mission, we commit to love one another with radical affection. We commit to love one another with radical affection because you remember what Christ said, don't you? He said that the success of his global mission unfolding in the world is profoundly dependent on the people in their local churches having affectionate love for one another. Let's put it another way. The worth and beauty of the master will only be evident to the world if, and that is a huge if, we have authentic love, sacrificial love for one another. Love is literally the catalyst for a global mission of undaunted courage. And speaking of that global mission, that brings us to number seven. We commit to proclaim the gospel both locally and abroad. We commit to proclaim the gospel both locally and abroad. Because again, it's not either or, it's both and. We will not be one of those churches who say, well, I know there's a lot of needs overseas, but we've got a lot of needs here. Or, well, I know there's a lot of needs here, but we really need to go overseas. No, it's not either or, it's both and. It's Jerusalem and the ends of the earth. Or, it is Arlington. Arlington and the ends of the earth. Our mission is to make disciples who make disciples, who plant churches, who make disciples, and on and on it goes until all of God's elect from every nation are reached and history is over. This is who we are. And if this is not who we are, then this is who we must become. And so all of that, that mission statement, those seven non-negotiable commitments and priorities, that is driving our church. That is who we are. That is driving this 20-year plan to change the world. And so I hope you love the sound of all that because challenging, should I say impossible though that may be, this is who we are as a church. Now, one little parenthesis before I unfold the 20-year plan. We're almost there. Before we talk about this plan, we need to talk a little bit about the area in which we live, namely the DFW area. I I think if we're going to make a dent for the Great Commission, we should understand something about the area in which we live. And I did this last year. I I shared some of these stats last year, but you should know that the area in which we live has overwhelming challenges that will probably shock you. And yet, at the very same time, this also has profound potential to inspire you. So, for instance, you know that we are nestled right now into the heart of the uh, DFW Metroplex, which is home to about more than 7.5 million people. It's probably closer to eight now, so so more than 7.5 million people. This is where we are, right right in the middle of all of that. And get this, of those 7.5 million people, 78% of the population professes Christianity. That's 5.8 million people who profess some version of Christianity. And we hear that 78%, we're kind of tempted to think, well, all that's left is cleanup duty. Right? I mean, we're just picking up the crumbs here. I mean, everybody's already saved. There's nobody left to reach here. Let's just sit back and relax and enjoy the flight until Jesus comes. And yet, and yet, it might be a little too early to break out the champagne and celebrate because the website from which I got these statistics, they, uh, they when they talk about 78 Christianity, they were using Christianity in the in the broadest possible terms, including Catholics, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and all the liberal denominations who years ago abandoned the Bible. So we're not actually talking about seventy-eight percent authentic Christianity, are we? There's more. There's more. call it bad news if you like. I call it a profound opportunity to make a dent for the Great Commission. In the DFW area, get this, 62% of the population feels that their spiritual beliefs are, and I quote, very important to them. 62%. Stats are kind of funny. There's kind of a science of how to understand them, but that has to mean at the very least that of the 78% who profess Christianity, there is a portion of them who do not feel that their spiritual beliefs are very important to their lives, which doesn't surprise me at all because my neighborhood is filled with these kinds of people. Don't get, don't get me wrong they're kind and they're sweet and on the surface they're moral people who keep the rules but to my observation they live their lives as though God makes zero difference to their lives and they live in your neighborhoods too there's more of the 7.5 million people who live in the DFW area get this 41% only 41% of the population of this area is actually connected to a local church It's interesting that has to mean that there is a discrepancy between those who profess Christianity and those who are actually connected to a local church in the Bible. That makes zero sense, zero sense. There's no such thing as a healthy, thriving, robust Christian detached from the local church. It does not happen. Get this 31% of the DFW actually reads the Bible once a week, 31%. 49% of the DFW never reads their Bibles. So that means of the 78% who profess Christianity, a third of them read the Bible once a week, and a third of them never read the Bible. That's 2 million people in this area who profess Christianity who have zero connection to the scriptures. That's interesting, isn't it? They form their beliefs and their theology from something other than the Bible. Now, I'm not talking about some box checking mentality where, you know, you're better, you're superior to those who don't read the Bibles. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that the math doesn't add up. There's no such thing as having a thriving Christian life without the intravenous drip line relationship to the word of God. Here's more. Of the DFW population, the Bible Belt-ish DFW population, only 37% of the population actually believe there's an absolute standard for right and wrong. Only 37%. So compute. That means that a little less than half of the professing believers in this area, less than half of the professing believers in this area believe that there is an absolute truth. That's astonishing. So despite Seattle's reputation as being postmodern and liberal, DFW isn't actually that far behind. And we know that's no exaggeration because get this, 39% of this area, only 39% of this area believes that you should take the Bible literally. Only 39%. So that means, compute, if that 78% number of Christianity is true, the number should be way higher, right? So what this means, what this means that more than half of the professing believers in this area do not believe that you should take the Bible literally. But however, the number that I found most disturbing was that 75% of this area believes that when they die, they're going to heaven. Okay. Okay. That means that three out of every four people that you know believe that when they die, they will be with God. And yet what I'm asking is, do they actually even understand the gospel? Do they actually know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And so my point is, the work here, it ain't done. Not by a long shot. In fact, I think that the work here has a special kind of urgency about it, don't you? because so many people in this area are persuaded that they're saved. And yet the truth of the matter is that might not actually be the case. And so what that tells me is we are in the right place. This is an incredible place to be. It's like Luther said, he said that if you fight your battle where it doesn't rage the hottest, you therefore, for that reason are unfaithful. And I believe we are in one of those areas where the battle rages the hottest I mean, there is incredible, breathtaking potential to make an impact for the Great Commission here, especially when you consider that this area, the DFW area, has the fourth largest Muslim population in the entire United States. 79,000 Vietnamese, 1.6 million Hispanics, 54,000 Chinese, around 400,000, almost half a million college students in this area, many from U.S., many from overseas. The nations have come to us. Think about it. God's elect are here. Those purchased by the lamb are here. I mean, they're out there, too, in the nations, but they're here. They're just there. There for the taking. And if we're not going to reach them, then, then who? What, do, do we get a pass because we're not a big church? We're just a little church? No. No, this is our mission. Because you see, the purpose of God is that the gospel of Christ reach Every tribe and tongue and nation, people, the gospel of Christ spread into all the world and take root in God-centered, Christ-exalting churches. And I believe, by God's grace, we can be that kind of church, that if we play our cards right, that in 200 years from now, this church will not only have a mailing address, but it will actually be increasing in its great commission effectiveness for the glory of Christ. In other words, we will be healthy enough to multiply. So that brings me now, finally, to our 20-year plan, a 20-year plan that we started last year. We are one full year into it, our 20-year plan that changed the world, unfolding in four stages, how you can be a part. The first stage of our 20-year plan is this. It's in your notes. Number one, years one through five, which we are calling internal impact, internal impact. So again, we're in the middle of our 20 year plan right now. In fact, uh, again, we are in year two of the first five years of our plan. And again, you can see we're calling it internal impact. And all that means, and this is all that means, is that we are learning how to be a church again. Learning how to be a church again. The elders project that if this church is going to be a launch site for global ministry, that if we're going to run the marathon of the Great Commission and win, that we had better be in shape. You have to be healthy enough to multiply. Or to put it this way, NASA doesn't reach the moon with rickety rockets and broken computers and half the people showing up for work. They only reach the moon when every bolt is tight and everyone on board believes in the mission. And so I want us to build NASA together together to launch rockets, to reach new frontiers that plant more, NASAs that launch more rockets and on and on it goes and they do the same. There's a key phrase that's been rolling around, pinballing around in my head the last couple years and I really believe that it's the key to long-term health and impact at our church. Here's this wordy phrase that's been rolling around in my head. You ready? It's this. Ecclesiological health for missiological impact. That's the phrase. Ecclesiological health for missiological impact. Ecclesiological means church. Missiological means mission, which means the more healthy our church becomes, the more effective we will be for the mission to which we're called. Don't believe me? Look again at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And I want you to notice the in-house activities that this first church on the very planet dedicated themselves to without ceasing. Acts 2, verse 42. Notice what it says. It says, and they were, that church, those people in the church, they were devoting themselves continuously to the teaching of the apostles and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Did you hear it? The four unceasing in-house activities to which this first church gave itself, they never stopped doing these four things. Number one, they devoted themselves without ceasing to the teaching, literally to the doctrine of the apostles. Meaning what? Meaning they listened to preaching all the time. They listened to teaching all the time. They studied theology all the time. The, the apostles were always preaching. Which if you wondered why it is we spend so much time talking about doctrine and theology and the proclamation of the word is because we get it from here. And notice, notice, isn't it interesting to you that doctrine is first on the list? Why? Because That's the thing that drives everything we do. That's how we learn to do everything else. But number two, this church devoted itself unceasingly to fellowship, literally to the fellowship. Fellowship means that you share something together. These people, the point is these people felt a profound responsibility for one another. In fact, that's what authentic fellowship is. It's doing the one another's to and for one another. This isn't just hanging out, shooting the breeze. This is intentional investment of the word of God into one another's lives. And so what this implies is these people were always together, always together. Sundays and throughout the week, missing the corporate gathering was just not an option for these people. But then number three. This church devoted itself without ceasing to the breaking of bread, the breaking of bread, which is just a first century way to say these people always ate together in one another's homes, which means this church was a hospitable church. See, these people understood that the mission of Christ advances through warm meals and cups of coffee, and soft couches, and inviting people into your homes and sharing your very lives with them. Number four, this church, never closed, opened seven days a week, devoted itself to prayer. To prayers, plural, which means they prayed a whole bunch and they prayed all the time. Because these people understood, these people understood That prayer is the mechanism through which the power of God is unleashed into the world for a global mission. You see, that is the kind of stuff I mean by internal impact, internal church health and impact. And I'm convinced that if we take the next five years, now four years, to do these kinds of things, learning how to be a church again, that if we take the next four years and we preach a lot and we eat a lot and we Pray a lot and we have each other in our homes a lot doing hospitality. Mark my words, organic supernatural growth is going to happen and we are going to make an impact. Four straight years of doing that. And I can imagine someone saying at this point, that's not true. If all you do is just focus on the internal health of your church, you're never going to grow. You're never going to change. People are never going to get saved. You're just going to be the same old church you always were. You're going to be inbred and ingrown. And to be sure, that seems logical. But that's not what the text says. Look down at verse 47. It says that the church was praising God and having favor with all the people. Here it is. And the Lord... Was adding to the number of those who were being saved. Day after day. Do you see it? What was happening inside the walls of the church was so compelling and beautiful and irresistible. When the people peeked inside and saw the robust body life happening inside the church, when they heard the teaching and saw the fellowship and smelled the meals and heard the prayers, they saw a community that was so compelling that they could not help but want to be a part of it. And they got saved. (laughs) My question is, Could this be us? Could we be the axe to compelling community to whom the Lord adds to our number? I think we can. I think we can. Because if we play our cards right and we do the kinds of things that the New Testament says churches should do, the Lord will add to our number. Because think about it. Here's a little application here. Think about it. Most people think that if you want to grow your church, you build a building. You, you, you build programs. You, you want people to start coming to your church? You give the people what they want. You cater to their desires. You've got to have a youth ministry, men's ministry, biker gang, softball team, coffee shop, exercise class, and those things are fine. They are just fine. But programs do not build a healthy church. They organize a healthy church, but they do not create a healthy church. Because if the leadership, and now this is the application for the leader, so I'm pointing the finger at us. If the leadership loves you and cares for you and shepherds you and equips you and trains you, of which we are in process and wanting to know how to do better. And if you are constantly growing and you feel like you are growing more in your spiritual lives than you ever have before, then people will come. That's the connection. If you feel like this church is a haven for your soul, and that's exactly what I want it to be, people will come. You know why? Because you will bring them. You will. That's exactly what happened in Acts chapter 2. People will come. People will see the impact in your lives. You will want to include people in what is happening in your soul and people will come and the Lord will add to our number and they will be saved because they will see change in your lives. We're in this together. So that's internal impact and that's what it looks like. And, and so here's what I want to give you now. I want to give you nine strategic initiatives. Nine strategic initiatives. These are the kinds of things internally that we need to commit ourselves to do as a church. So if you're like, okay, what is, what does Christ community church look like? What kinds of things do they, you know, when push comes to shove, what kinds of things are they're going to be doing week in and week out? Here they are nine strategic initiatives that we must do so that we can be strategically poised to make a dent for the great commission. Here they are. Some of these we already do. Some of these we need to do. Number one, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Equipping the saints for the work of ministry. So we started this last year in the form of equipment classes, right? And again, that's why we offer theology and marriage and parenting and Bible and Greek for whom 31 people signed up for the class. That is astonishing to me. And the reason why we do this is not merely to fill our heads with information, but because this is the means to our transformation, Romans 12, 2 says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. You see, if we don't know the text, we cannot be transformed by the text. We can't apply what we don't know. And so we do biblical and theological training here because to live biblically, we have to think biblically. And the more we are planted in the Bible-soaked soil of doctrine and theology, the more we as a church will become a towering redwood that displays the glory of Christ. Number two, biblical counseling training. These are internal initiatives to which we must devote ourselves as a church. Number two, biblical counseling training. These are all things that we need to be doing now and in the next four years. Last year, we offered biblical counseling, and we're going to offer it every single year. And eventually, I want every single person in this church trained in biblical counseling. Because all biblical counseling is, is the spiritual skill of helping one another apply the word of God to our lives. That's it. And the reason why this is so important, understand this, the reason why this is so important to learn how to do, is because our sanctification and our perseverance in Christ, firm until the end, is a community service project. All this is, is Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom. Hear this teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's what this is. In fact, not only, not only are we going to offer biblical counseling, I've actually asked people in our church to become certified biblical counselors. I've asked people to do that. And guess what? Friday evening, they started their training. There's a church in Fort Worth that they do biblical counseling certification. Some of the people that I've asked to do that, they have started their training already. And so we are already on our way. And why did I ask them to do that? So that they could do all the counseling? No. So that they can train, help train a whole church to do biblical counseling. It has begun. Number three. Number three, ministry teams. We need to do ministry teams. That is, we need to create official teams and opportunities for you to serve and utilize your spiritual gifts in the church because a healthy church is a serving church. I'm not interested in guilting anybody. I'm interested in providing opportunities for you to make an impact and help make this church a healthy church. And there are plenty of opportunities right now for you to serve. And inside your bulletin, on the right side, you will see a list of teams that you can join today. We are shopping around for people. Number four, strategic initiative. Monthly all-church fellowship meals. Monthly all-church fellowship meals meals, which sounds like a small thing, but you just eat together. Yes. How is that helpful? Well, you know what that does? The church that eats together, embarks on a mission together, eating together, strange though it may be, forges us together into a, a blood bought battalion of souls who embark together on a mission. So when all this COVID stuff clears, We're going to meet together as a church every single month, and we are going to eat together. That is important. Number five, we need to cultivate a culture of hospitality. We need to cultivate a culture of hospitality. This is so massive to the life of a church. It's so huge. You know why? Because without hospitality, get this, the Great Commission does not happen. Or at least it does not happen nearly the way that it should. As I said earlier, you have to understand that the mission of Christ in the world, it unfolds through flesh and blood interactions, through warm meals and cups of coffee and plates of pie and soft couches and inviting people into your homes and sharing your very lives with them. That's great commission work. You got to get one another into your homes. It's got to happen. I mean, especially newcomers and visitors. I mean, it could be corn dogs and lemonade for all I care. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be fancy. But the more we do hospitality, the more people will come to our church and the more they will stay. Number six women mentoring women. Women mentoring women. Because Titus 2 verses 3 through 5 makes it really, really plain that the older women in a church, and I'll leave it for you to define what older means, but that the older women in the church, that their mission is to be teachers and trainers of the younger women and help them be and do all that God calls them to be and do in Christ. That's called ministry. That's called ministry discipleship. You don't, you don't need the elders to ask you to do that. You could totally do that. And we would be so thrilled. That's great commission work. That's how the great commission operates. That's how we become a healthy church that changes the world. And so even this year, this year, we are beginning to put things in place to come alongside older and younger women and help them learn how to invest the word of Christ into one another's lives. Number seven, initiative number seven spending most of my time on the first four years because that's where we are now. But number seven, small groups and redemptive relationships. Small groups and redemptive relationships. And that's a really important word that I want you to not forget because this is going to become part of our fabric as a church. And that's that phrase, redemptive relationships. I want you to commit that to memory because you're going to hear that a lot. Redemptive relationships. And all that means is that your spiritual growth is my top priority and my spiritual growth is your top priority. That's what that means. And that we make deliberate intentional efforts to care for one another spiritually. This isn't just friendships. This is redemptive relationships. This is the mutual faithful investment of the word of God into one another's lives have to do this. We must do this. And I really believe that small groups are the most natural platform by which redemptive relationships happen. Now we already do small groups. I know but coming soon to a church near you, there will be a renewed vision of small groups and how they work and how they operate. And so I'm going to preach on that in two weeks, but I want every single member. We call them owners here. I want every member to be a part of a small group because what they are, not just Bible studies These are platforms for redemptive relationships more to come. Number eight. Initiative number eight. Training men for ministry. Training men for ministry. Because I'm going to say something that's going to sound shocking. But the health of any local church is profoundly dependent upon the leaders of that local church training young men for ministry. That's a fact. That's a fact. To be the next generation of spiritual leaders in the church. Women too, which we already mentioned. But especially also the men. Training men is the essence of being healthy enough to multiply. In fact, 2 Timothy 2.2 commands pastors to invest and train men for ministry and help them be the next generation of leaders in the local church. This is absolutely essential to be a healthy church that changes the world because where leaders in a local church do not train men for ministry, that church eventually eats itself to death and dies in obscurity. And so we're beginning this year, something I'm calling Ezra 710 men, Ezra 710 men, which you can see is inspired by Ezra seven verse 10. You can look, up, look it up later, but all this is, is a deliberate plan to invest in men, to train young men for ministry and make them the next generation of leaders in the local church. You interested, let's talk. Finally, number nine. Number nine, strategic initiative number nine, we want to invest in moms and dads and even entire families. We want to invest in moms and dads and even entire families because the reality is the health of any church is dependent upon the health of individual families that make up that church. That's just, that's just simple ecclesiology. In any family where the dad is struggling and he's out to lunch spiritually... And the mom is frantic and feels chaotic and is floundering and the kids are going out of control. I just want you to know... That's, that's not how we have a healthy church. I'm not saying that's happening. I'm just, I'm just saying, and all families have their struggles. I'm just saying it is the role of elders and leaders to invest deeply, to go for broke when it comes to investing in families and helping them fulfill their role because you have to understand moms and dads that the most important mission field in ministry that you have is within the walls of your very own home. We want to help you with that. Now, what that looks like, we'll see in the coming years, but that is where we're going. And so that's it. That's the first five years of this church. That's the next four years of this church. We want to do those kinds of things, those and other kinds of things, internal church health and impact, a compelling community to whom the Lord adds to our number. That's where we need to go as a church. And I I think you're going to love it. Over these next four years, if you buy into what we're doing, I think these could be the sweetest of years together as a church because we are forging our identity together as a community of blood-bought souls embarking on a mission together. And if we play our cards right, we could be healthy enough to multiply and we could be a healthy church that changes the world. And what this does is raise the question. Okay, if you do that kind of stuff, Jared, if you do that, And you commit to doing the kinds of strategic initiatives that you just talked about in years one through five, of which we have four years left. If you commit to that, what will will we be strategically poised and ready to do in the future? That's a great question. That brings us to the second, third, and fourth stages of our plan. I'm going to do it real quickly and unfold where we're going. The second stage of our plan to change the world, years five through seven, we're calling citywide regional impact. Citywide regional impact impact. Because at the five to seven year mark, again, of which we are four years away, I propose, let's go for absolute broke when it comes to reaching lost people with the gospel. I mean, let's just give it everything we've got. Now, I don't mean we wait four years before we share the gospel with anyone. I'm not saying that because we should and we must proclaim the gospel. That begins now. That never ceases. I'm just saying if we play our cards right over the next four years, we will not only be able to do evangelism, but then we will be able to disciple those whom we evangelize because making disciples is not just proclaiming the gospel. It's teaching them to keep all that Christ commanded. We're in the disciple making business. And so this would include things like, but not be limited to, and there it's all in your notes. Number one, citywide theological training. We love theological training here. Let's open that up outside the, outside the walls of this church to other churches and leaders in the area. Let's help strengthen other churches. I think we can do that. Number two, refugee outreach ministry because the nations are here. Number three. A distinct, profound presence on college campuses in an attempt to reach the over 400,000 college students in this city. Number four, hosting international students in your home, a low hanging fruit, easy way to proclaim the gospel. Number five, aggressive neighborhood evangelistic outreach, which means it would be really great if we had a building. We don't need a building to be a church, but if we had one, there's our neighborhood. Number six, a VBS that not just seeks to reach kids, but even as a church, we seek to reach entire families through a VBS expand the normal vision of a BBS and let's reach families. And then number seven, let's do what I'm calling community infiltration, which all I mean by that are just thinking of creative ways to make gospel connections with people. Let's, let's do strategic park barbecues. Let's have barbecues at the park and invite everybody. And then I'll preach to them. How's that? Let's, let's get involved in local, elementary, junior high, high schools. Let's do what we can to assist them and make connections with parents. Let's do, I mentioned this last year, remember this? The undercover bowling team. Think about it. Think about it. This is really strategic. You get four people, you join a bowling team. Every single, and, and I grew up going to bowling alleys, okay? So this is, not like a, this is not being judgy at all. I grew up going to bowling alleys. Most people who are in bowling leagues aren't believers, okay? I grew up going to bowling alleys. Imagine... You three other people you're on a bowling team every single week you rub shoulders, you partner up with another team opportunities for the gospel right there, right there. Awesome. Undercover bowling team undercover. The third stage, third stage of our plan to change the world years seven through 10, which I'm calling national impact, national impact. I believe that if we play our cards right in these next four years, And we do the kinds of things that the new Testament says we should do as a church. I believe that eventually we could have an impact outside of the state of Texas. That would be profound. Wouldn't it? That'd be incredible. I believe that's possible. I believe it's possible in what way, how? Well, there's probably lots of opportunities, not just limited to these two ways, but what if we did this? What if we were so committed to training men for ministry that we sent men who were future pastors to seminary, who then went on from seminary to be a part of churches in other parts of the country. Wouldn't that count as making a nationwide impact? Wouldn't that be an extension of our ministry? Because I'll have, you know, I have, you know, I came from a church in Washington that, that has sent out 30 men from the walls of their church and their families to seminary who are now pastoring all over the United States and overseas from Spokane, Washington, who even knows and who cares where that is. And yet they're making a nationwide and even global impact because of their commitment to train men for ministry. Let's do that. That sounds really good. Let's make a national impact in that way. Number two. Again, these aren't the only ways. There's other ways, and I'm open to hearing more. Number two, let's be a biblically counseling, biblical counseling training center that does counseling certification. Let's not only do biblical counseling, let's do certification for others. Let's be a hub and a center from to which others can come and get certification in biblical counseling. Let's, let's be this kind of church so that people can come from Oklahoma and Louisiana and from Arkansas, and they can come here, and we could be a hub where they're getting trained to do biblical counseling in their local churches. I mean, how exciting is that? That's profound. And also, I should say this, that in Spokane, the church where I came from, that their biblical counseling ministry saw more people come to Christ through that ministry than, than through any other, any other evangelistic outreach ministries that they did. Isn't that interesting? They heard that there was free biblical counseling. Unbelievers show up. They get the gospel. They get saved. They become a part of that church. That, that has happened many, many times in the last few years at that church in Spokane. Let's do that. That sounds really good. Which brings us now to the fourth stage. The fourth stage of our plan to change the world. Years 10 through 20, which we are calling global impact. Global impact. Do you see the chain reaction? Internal impact, regional impact, national impact, and then global impact. Again, I think that if we play our cards right, this is what we can do. Imagine in 10 to 20 years what could happen. In 10 to 20 years, if we do what the New Testament says we should do, let's do a church plant. Or church plants, plural. Plural right? Why not? There are lots of churches here, right? But, but let's be a church committed. Let's be a NASA who builds more NASA's that launch more rockets that build more NASA's that then go on to do the same. Let's do church plans. Some of you will need to be a part of those church plans. I think that we are on a trajectory. If we play our cards right, we can be and do that. Number two, I want to send our first crop of missionaries. There are a few people thinking about that now, so I'm not saying we're not doing that. I'm just saying, let's be the kind of church where 10 to 20 years from now, we not only have our own homegrown missionaries, but that our church is a crowded runway filled with people who want to reach overseas and who are begging the elders to send them. Let's be that kind of church. I think we can be that. And how that happens is if now we make equipping and training and preaching and praying and eating and disciple making together, if we make that our top priority, because we are simply not interested in being the kind of church that in 20 years shrinks to the size of a small group. And all they can do is reminisce about the glory days and how great things used to be. No We want the vision of St. Patrick of Ireland, who 200 years after he was dead, his seminaries were still sending missionaries to mainland Europe two centuries after his death. Let's be that kind of church. At 200 years after all of us have vanished from the planet, that we not only exist as a church, but we have increasing global impact as a church. That's what we're living for. We want to be healthy enough to multiply. And I want you to be a part of it. That's the 20-year plan. That's where we're going. Let's go to work. Let's go to the Lord. Oh Lord, we understand that it is right to craft visions and dream big and to design directions of where we're going to go if it matches up with what we see in your word. And these kinds of things I think we see in your word. And yet, Lord, we are mindful of the fact that we don't want to be presumptuous. We know that all the things that we've talked about this morning, they cannot happen through mere human means. We're just people and we're going to struggle and it's going to be difficult and there's going to be misunderstandings along the way and hurt feelings and there's going to be setbacks and shortcomings and and we understand that Lord. And so we, we ask, I just plead with you that you would protect this sweet body of saints that you would help us to be a church that despite the struggles and challenges that we're going to face, that we would keep our eye on the big picture, that we are a church with a mission headed towards a destination, that we would that we would be riveted by what you're doing in history, that we would be gripped by your global plan, that you would be, help us be healthy enough to multiply. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these people, these sweet, generous, sacrificial people, who have stuck through this church through years of difficult things, hard things, great things too, but hard things too. And Lord, we think especially of Earl and Helen who died in this church, died loving this church, who gave their lives to make this church healthy. So Lord, we want to carry on that sacred call and stand on their shoulders and be the kind of church it multiplies itself and changes the world. We ask for your sovereign grace to do so in the mattress name of Christ. We pray. Amen. Well, these are exciting days. So privileged to be a part of this and what God is doing in human history. Next week, we're going to talk about, uh, again, we're doing three weeks of talking about vision next week. We're going to talk about uh, members of what it means to be members of a local church. Why membership is important. Where does membership come from in the Bible? Why you should be a member if you are not one? And we're going to address that. Is that actually, is membership in the Bible? We're going to talk about all that next week. The third week uh, will, as I said, will unfold a new vision for small groups and redemptive relationships and how having authentic spiritual care for one another is is central to the life of a local church. So that's where we're going. For now, let me do a, a couple announcements of things that you need to know about. These are all connected to our 20-year plan, by the way. Um, uh, first of all, is uh, one, two, three weeks from now we're going to do New Owner Sunday. This is really exciting. I want you to know this: uh, that in the last year and a half, that about fifty people have come to our church, and most of you are in the room who have come here in the last year and a half. So that's exciting. You know, fifty people in 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 a year and a half—that's that, a lot of growth. And so, uh, and. Uh, part of that is new owner sunday 3 weeks from now we're going to have people who have become new owners we call them owners here they're going to stand up front and they're going to declare uh their desire to be accepted as owners members of this church and you are going to accept them at least i hope you will and uh we'll give you more details about what that's going to look like but we're going to induct new owners to the life of to the body of Christ community bible church that's that's really exciting so be ready for that uh announcement number 2 um is Yes, uh, uh, Sunday nights, the fourth Sunday of every month, we want to do theology seminars. Uh, the theme for the next several months is we're going to talk about cults and false religions. And so we're calling the series, The Gods Who Did Not Make the Heavens. That comes from Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 11, where Jeremiah, and this scathing rebuke of Babylonian false gods says, the gods who did not make the heavens shall disappear from under the heavens. And so... It was, a, um, it was his way of saying, look, there is one God and we need to know that the gods uh, other than the true God will not last. So that's what this is. So we'll talk about uh, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, Buddhism. I think we'll even take a stab at atheism and evolution and different things like that. We'll talk about worldview. And so that will be just a tool. It's a tool for you to be able to share the gospel with lost people. And then last but not least, um, yes, so uh, this is really central to what we're doing as a church, trying to promote internal. Uh, church health and growth. We've got two ladies' studies uh, happening simultaneously. I love this. This is really great. Uh, One option is that you can do the Joshua study, and this is great, learning the sacred text of the book of Joshua and growing from the things that you see there. And again, you see all the information uh, about when that happens. These are uh, uh, happening over Zoom, uh, which is great. So, uh, the other study is called uh, "Quieting a Noisy Soul." So again, you see there, overcoming guilt, anxiety, anger, and despair. It's just it's just learning how to think on truth. It's not a class; it's a Bible study, and so. Um, These are uh, two studies happening at the same time. We're doing our best to kind of where all the ladies have connections together. Anyway, it'll make sense when you get there. Uh, If you are interested in signing up for either one of those, uh, actually, we've got Gloria right here to my left, your right. So talk to her if you're interested in the Joshua study. And then my own wife in the back, if you're interested in quieting a noisy soul, talk to her. Uh, Either one is a total win. And so the point is just getting the the word of God absorbed into the bloodstream of our souls, okay? So you have time to sign up for both. Do not hesitate. If you've got the time to do it, we would very much encourage that, okay? All right, well, I think that's it. Why don't we stand together with a closing benediction? And I love this for a benediction. I take it again from Ephesians chapter three, verses 20 and 21, which we read earlier. The Apostle Paul says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all the generations forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed. We'll see you next week.
0: you are-